following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Brought a little thing here with me. How many of you recognize, I know it's kind of hard for you to see, what what are these? Anyone recognize what these are? Post-it notes, right? Yeah, sticky notes was uh, actually post-it notes was the original name given to him by the company that invented them, 3M. In fact, I noticed some over on the speaker over here. I was going to poach them earlier, but I decided I'd bring my own. But uh, it's an interesting story how these things came about, how they were invented. Actually, the guy who invented the glue behind it named uh, Spencer Silver was actually trying to uh, discover and invent a super adhesive glue. Well, it didn't, didn't work too well, did it? Um, but uh, he came up with this uh, formula that actually had the kind of glue that uh, was reusable. Uh, but it wasn't very strong. It was strong enough to stick two pieces of paper together. Uh, but then they could be taken apart without tearing them. Uh, Silver tried to uh, somehow promote this invention within uh, 3M. But nobody chose to listen. They Really, most people called it a solution without a problem. And so it was tabled for a while. Uh, there was another man, a colleague of his named Art Fry. Uh, he, w- he saw Spencer's invention, didn't think a whole lot about it until one day at church, of all places. Uh, he was part of a church choir, and he would be singing, and he'd have bookmarks in this hymnal for the songs that they'd be singing. And he got very frustrated because these bookmarks would often fall out of his hymnal. And so uh, one day, while he's in a service, during a sermon, his mind wandered. Now, I know you'd never do that, but... It, it uh, turns out that it dawned on him as, as the, the, the sermon was going, it hit him that, you know what, that adhesive that uh, Spencer came up with, that would work great for a bookmark and it would stay on the page and not ruin the, the page. And so Fry took that idea, he pitched it at 3M, and after five years of development and effort, we have today post-it notes. It's quite an interesting story. Twelve years after its original invention, what was originally a mistake has become a very successful, almost a, a necessity of office supplies that we have. My research advisor, when I was in grad school, he would always bring up the story of the post-it note because uh, he would often tell us, you know, don't throw away your research. Even if you didn't discover what you wanted to or the, the experiment didn't turn out as you wanted it to, you may have a success in disguise. And then we'd get the story of the post-it note. But I'm not telling you the story for that reason. Uh, the post-it notes came to my mind this week because of how I use them. How do you guys use post-it notes? As reminders, right? Bookmarks in the hymnal. Yeah, okay, Tim, there's an idea, perhaps. Um, yeah, reminders, right? In fact, if I look over here, I don't know what's on these post-it notes. Hopefully something that... Guitar, Sean Staples. Okay, I guess that's to remind him to bring his guitar. <laughs> Rhythm. Okay, I guess that's important, too, when you're playing the guitar. There's some important reminders that Sean has written for himself over here. And I would use them in that way as well. I had reminders all over my desk. In fact, uh, there was a time you could hardly see my computer screen because I had meetings and events and special days. uh, My wife's birthday and, and anniversary definitely were up there to remind me all sorts of things. And what became sad is over time, that became my memory. It was glued onto my computer screen. By the way, actually, do you know why these are yellow or why they first became yellow? It's fascinating because actually when they were looking for paper to test the idea out, the only paper they can find was yellow paper next door. And so the idea stuck, I guess. But but in studying Hosea, especially chapters 8 to 10, these post-it note reminders came to my mind, not only because there's a few of them still on my desk, but... But I kept finding myself as I was studying and looking at the things that Hosea had written in these chapters. I said, that that phrase sounds familiar. Or I remember he said that before, back in chapter 3. Or, uh, you know, I know that he said something like this already. Chapters 8 through 10 really are a review, a reminder, a repetition of what Hosea has already discussed several times before in his book. In these three chapters, he may be using different wording or some of the illustrations are slightly different, but the themes and the main point is the same. 
And so as I read chapter 8 to you, I want you to see if you notice anything that sounds familiar. Uh, If you could please stand as I read chapter 8 in honor of God's Word. We're going to be looking at this together. Verse 1 begins, Put the trumpet to your lips like an eagle. The enemy comes against the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. They cry out to me, My God, we of Israel know you. Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. They have set up kings, but not by me. They have appointed princes, but I did not know it. With their silver and gold, they have made idols for themselves, that they might be cut off. He has rejected your calf, O Samaria, saying, My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For from Israel is even this. A craftsman made it, so it is not God. Surely the calf of Samaria will be broken to pieces, for they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. Standing grain has no heads, it yields no grain. Should it yield, strangers would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. They are now among the nations like a vessel in which no one delights. If they have gone up to Assyria, like a wild donkey all alone, Ephraim has hired lovers, even though they hire allies among the nations. Now I will gather them up and they will begin to diminish because of the burden of the king of princes. Since Ephraim has multiplied altars for sin, they have become altars of sinning for them. Though I wrote for him 10,000 precepts of my law, they are regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial gifts, they sacrifice the flesh and eat it, but the Lord has taken no delight in them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish them for their sins. They will return to Egypt, for Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. And Judah has multiplied fortified cities, but I will send a fire on its cities that it may consume its palatial dwellings. You may be seated. So again, going through this chapter, and if I had continued on in chapters 9 and 10, we again read of Israel's idol worship, God's judgment, alliances with Assyria, Israel's rejection of God, breaking her covenant, consequences for sin, and on and on it goes. And again, chapters 9 and 10 only continue in that vein. And so it seems that even though the the packaging may look a little bit different, it's the same message. And so as I'm studying chapter 8, as I'm reading and looking at chapter 9, and then chapter 10, the question keeps coming back to me, why? Why the repetition? Why go over the same things? Why the spiritual post-it notes, if you will? And we do need to remember that Hosea's book is a collection of messages that he delivered to Israel over the period of at least 20 years. With the continuing decline in Israel's spiritual condition, their refusal to repent, often, you know, it makes sense that often these messages that he delivered would have a similar theme, a similar idea, a similar principle that he was communicating. But when he wrote them down later, why didn't he just give us maybe one or two of those messages? Because they all seem to cover the same theme. Why didn't he maybe summarize more of what he had given? But instead, we have 14 chapters, 197 verses that seem to be going over the same themes multiple times. And I think about Hosea's book. I think, you know, his book really reflected his ministry. Why didn't he just give us one or two of these messages? Instead, he gives us over and over the repetition, the reminders going over the same things. And the use of repetition is an effective way to communicate because repetition can communicate an emphasis, right? An importance to repeat oneself is showing, hey, this is something you really need to grab. This is something that you really need to listen to. Repetition is something that for anybody going down The wrong road can serve as a clear warning, just as Hosea had given many times as he spoke to the people. But by the time this book was written, Israel was probably already in exile. Israel was gone, but Judah was still around, right? Hosea even refers to Judah several times throughout the book because they were headed in the same direction as Israel. And so Hosea's repetition would serve as a warning to them, to any in Judah who would hear or read of Hosea's message. Because I think primarily the book was written in order to warn Judah. And also it was written in order to warn us. For we have Hosea's reminders to show that what he had to say to Israel is also important for us to hear. 
They emphasize the importance of the message that he was delivering so that we would take it seriously. They give us better clarity and understanding of the message. Again, repetition and reminders are helpful to, to understand the, what the import is and also what it means. And let's face it, we need reminders. They're important because we can easily forget, right? I mean, Sean shows up and sits in his chair and he sees that sticky note, guitar, oh, I forgot my guitar, right? That's an important reminder for him. He'd never do that. But uh, Peter recognized the importance of reminders, of repeating the truths of the gospel. He said in 2 Peter 1.12, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present in you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. He goes on to say, And I will also be diligent, so that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. Peter saw his ministry, particularly in his latter days, as a ministry of reminder. He said later in chapter 3, verse 1, I am stirring up your sincere, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. You see, he knew that uh, what he was sharing, what he was writing, wasn't something new, but it was something important. Something we needed to hear again and again. Because we, too, as we hate to admit it, we, too, though, tend to forget, don't we? We have a tendency to lose sight of what's important. We have a tendency to stray from living out the truth or sometimes even ignoring it. We have a tendency to be distracted by life, right? And so we need God to give us post-it notes. We need Him to remind us. That's why this morning we're going to look at five spiritual reminders from Hosea, and particularly in chapter 8, and then we'll touch on chapters 9 and 10 as we look. And really the first four verses, Hosea lays out those reminders and then develops them through the chapters that follow. So if we look back at verse 1 of chapter 8, Hosea conveys the importance of these reminders by beginning with two very abrupt phrases, which in the Hebrew literally read, To your mouth a shofar, like an eagle against the house of the Lord. These are intended to, to jar the hearer to attention, to see the importance that danger is upon you. Blow the trumpet to warn the city. And then that second phrase de- declares the imminence of that da- danger as he uh, describes this picture of an eagle swooping down upon its prey. I remember... Uh, um, several years ago when we were in Yellowstone Park and uh, we were looking out over a river and all of a sudden, out of the blue, this eagle comes flying down, hits the water and grabs a friss and he's gone. It, was, it happened like that. I actually did get a picture, but it was so fast, there's just a little blur on the, on the picture there. But I was amazed at the, how rapidly the eagle swooped down on its prey and it was gone like that. And that's the, the, the impression that Hosea is trying to leave the people here. Danger's coming and it's going to happen in the blink of an eye. God's warning the people that if they do not change, the consequences of their sin was happening soon. He gives the reason for this in the next phrase in verse 1 when he says, "...because they have transgressed my covenant." Here we're given Hosea's first reminder. Remember to keep your promise. That word transgressed here is literally to to pass by or to pass over. And when it's used in the context of a covenant, it's basically an expression to say that they have uh, broken, the covenant was broken or it's going beyond or, or passing over it. We saw this same exact indictment last week in Hosea 6-7 when he said, uh, after saying that God delights in loyal love, and then in verse 7 of chapter 6, he says, but they have transgressed my covenant. If you'll recall, Hosea 4-1, it opened with a courtroom scene as God declared that he had a case against the people, and he said that they had no faithfulness. They were covenant breakers. They had no loyal love and no knowledge of God. Several other times, Throughout Hosea, God had declared how the people had betrayed him. They broke the promise that they had made more than once back in Exodus 24, that they would serve the Lord, that they would obey his instruction, that they would follow him. But God again tells them in Hosea 8, you've broken your promise. You've gone back on your word. 
And in repeating this yet again in Hosea and sticking that big post-it note in front of us and in front of his people Israel in particular here, it is clear that this is a big deal to God. This is important to him. When a promise is made, when a word is given, that matters to God. That's why Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 5.4, when you make a vow, a promise to God, don't be late in paying it. For he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Don't make a promise, God says, that you don't keep. Jesus said, Matthew 5, 37, let your yes be yes and your no, no, right? Repeat it again in James 5, 12. James repeats the exact same statement. And it's not just promises to God that matter. He cares about two promises and oaths we make to one another. In fact, later in Hosea 10, verse 12, or 4, excuse me, God says this, they speak mere words, and the implication is to one another. With worthless oaths, they make covenants. It bothered him that people were making promises to each other, oaths, covenants, contracts, and they weren't keeping it. In fact, he goes on in verse 4 to say that the courts are full because of that. They were suing one another, taking each other to court. Psalm 15, which begins with the all-important question, who may dwell with God? Well, one of the characteristics of that person, he says later, I think it's in verse 4, is one who swears to his own hurt. That means simply it's a person who keeps his promise, who keeps his word, even if it means personal loss or harm to keep it. Should this not be, brothers and sisters, what characterizes us? When you sign a contract, honor the requirements of the contract. When you promise to do something for someone, then do it. When you tell your kids you're going to be there, then what? You need to be there, right? When you say... I will be your wife until death do us part. Keep your word. When you look into your bride's eyes or when you did look into her eyes and said, I will be faithful to you until death. Keep your promise. Whenever you give your word, whether it's something big as a wedding vow or something small as, yes, I'll meet you tomorrow. Keep your vow. Keep your word. But oh, how quick we are in this culture to get out of that. We must remember that God doesn't consider the breaking of a promise a small matter at all. Again, loyalty matters to God. Keeping your word matters to God. Having integrity matters to God. See, every promise that you make, not only as to that person that you're making it, but also to the Lord himself. Beloved, let us be known as men and women of our word. Amen. Remember to keep your promise. The second reminder we're given is seen in the last line of verse 1 in the statement, they have rebelled against my law. Now, while this is a parallel idea to the previous statement, they have transgressed my covenant, there is an important distinction between these two phrases. The covenant and breaking the covenant connotes uh, this personal aspect of the agreement, giving your word to do something and then breaking it. Whereas the law emphasizes an objective moral standard which God had set about in his covenant. So by rebelling against his law, he's saying that the people here, they've not only broken their promise to God, but they have also violated his moral code, his standards, what is right and wrong. Both of these aspects are important to understand in regards to Israel's sin here, because in their lack of love for God, they betrayed their commitment and they also rejected doing what was morally right. And in this, we see the second reminder, and that is to remember to obey God's instruction. Remember to obey God's instruction. Israel's law-breaking was nothing new in Hosea. This isn't the first time that he mentioned the fact that they had broken his laws, that they had disobeyed him. Back in Hosea 4.6, God said, You've forgotten the law of your God. In Hosea 4.2, he said, They're swearing, deception, murder, stealing, adultery. They employ violence. So bloodshed follows bloodshed. Then in Hosea 4.11 and in Hosea 7.5, he describes their drunkenness. Hosea 4.14 tells of their immorality. And later in Hosea 12.7, he describes how they had been cheating one another, oppressing those who were powerless. 
They rebelled against God's law, and that's written all over Hosea. In fact, it was so bad, if you look down in Hosea 8, verse 12, which we read a minute ago, he says there, Though I wrote for Ephraim 10,000 precepts of my law, they are regarded as a strange thing. God's using hyperbole here. He he hadn't written 10,000 laws, but he's saying here that even if he had reminded them of his law 10,000 times over, they would still ignore it. They would still disobey it. And he says more than that, they they look at his law and it's strange to them. It's like some foreign thing that they don't understand or recognize. God's standards are completely lost on them. And God seems almost incredulous here as he says in verse 12, how in the world did my people get into a place where not only do they rebel against my commands, but they would do that no matter how many times I give them and they don't even seem to recognize them. Here we see that not only does keeping your promise matter to God, but obeying him matters to God. Jesus expressed the same incredulity in Luke 6, 46, when he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? He's like, that makes no sense. How is it that you say, you know me, Jesus said, and that I am your master, yet you don't obey me? God expects obedience because Frankly, that is the most obvious trait of a child of God. 1 John 3, 9 makes that abundantly clear when he said, No one who is born of God practices sin because his, that is God's seed, abides in him. And he cannot sin because he's born of God. He's not saying there you can never sin, but sin is not a pattern in his life. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. That word obvious means plainly seen, evident, clear. There's no mistake. Children of the devil are obvious and the children of God. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. He's pretty black and white there. You realize what he's saying? He's saying because God abides in his children, they will be obedient. Ephesians 1.4 says that God chose us in him to be holy and blameless. Colossians 1.22 says, He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Those are purpose statements where God is saying, this is what God has saved you. This is why Jesus Christ came and died for your sins so that you would be holy, blameless, no stain upon you. And Christian, you've not been saved to have an easy life of comfort. So your days on earth would be carefree. You've been saved to be holy. That's why Christ died. He died to cleanse you from your sin, to clean it off of you, to transform you, to make you new and pure. And he wants you to stay that way. And any person who's been cleansed will have this innate desire to stay cleansed. When any stain of sin gets on you, you confess that sin. You turn from it and you press forward in holiness. So I would ask, is there a pattern of obedience in your life? Is there a striving for holiness? Do you do you want to confess and repent when you do sin? Are you becoming more like Christ as time goes on? Because, beloved, these are the marks of a true believer. And I bring this up and I often bring it up because some here need to evaluate where you are really at with God. If you say that you're a Christian, but continue in a pattern of sin, that Jesus is talking directly to you. Say, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And don't do what I say. It is to you, Jesus will say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. But thankfully, thankfully, God gives believers the grace to obey him. If you are his child, it's not all up to you. Getting saved wasn't up to you. Staying clean is not up to you. He gives you the grace. He has given you his spirit to empower you to be able to do that. And he's given us one another to help in that. And so we're reminded here by Hosea, obey God's instruction. And thirdly, we see in Hosea, remember to cultivate your relationship with God. And again, in going through Hosea, we've talked about this several times. But again, he brings it up here and he brings it up here in sort of a a backdoor fashion. If we look at verse two, it says in Hosea eight, God says, they they cry out to me, my God, we of Israel know you. Then God says, Israel has rejected the good. 
And as we've seen all throughout Hosea, what is it that God desires? Holiness. There's another word, too. We looked at last week to know him, right? To have a relationship with him. He brings it up again here with the people as he talks. They speak to him and they're saying, my God, do we we do know you. You know, they're hearing these indictments. They're hearing God's call of judgment over and over. And they're saying, but God, we know you. We're right with you. Come on. We're on your side. We we give you sacrifices. We participate in the festivals and celebrations. We, we know you. But their words ring hollow. God declared in Hosea 4.1, there is no knowledge of God in the land. He said in 5.4, the people will not repent because they don't know the Lord. They don't know me. That's why he says here they've rejected the good. The good here is likely God and his blessings that he gives in, in, the, in a right relationship with him. Down in 8.14, we read, Israel has forgotten his maker. Again, a phrase we have seen before in Hosea. Hosea 2.13, he mentions it. Now, by saying that they had forgotten God, that doesn't mean that he was erased from their memory. In fact, they're claiming just the opposite, right? In verse 2, we do know you. We haven't forgotten you. We have a relationship with you. But here the word forget in verse 14 is this idea of neglect, of ignoring. It is to live life as if God did not exist. And that's the death knell of any relationship. When someone refuses to pursue, when someone neglects or ignores, when they are apathetic. And that's exactly what happened to Israel. God gives an example in verse 4 when he was talking about the kings. And we we talked about this last week when all the king after king was coming to the throne. And the main main ways they were doing that was through assassination. And in Hosea 7, 7, it says, you know, all this turmoil is going on, all this, but nobody's calling out to me. No one's seeking direction from me or help from me in setting up your rulers and kings. And he brings that up again here as an example of how they had forgotten God, neglected him. And it wasn't as if they hadn't been warned about this. In fact, turn over to Deuteronomy for a minute. There's several things here you know as the people were entering the promised land one of the themes in the book of deuteronomy is this idea of remembering god of not forgetting him and moses in as many messages to the people he keeps bringing this up and he keeps explaining and describing several ways in which they might forget god or how they can better remember him he says in deuteronomy 4 beginning in verse 5 one of his first cautions about not forgetting God. He says there, again, Deuteronomy 4, 5, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. Verse 6, So keep and do them. Look down at verse 9. Only give heed to yourself, keep yourself diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Here he says, keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget. It's the idea of don't lose sight of God's instruction. Consistently be in his word and follow it. This will keep you from forgetting God. Notice too at the end of verse 9, he says, another way that can, God can be forgotten is in the next generation when parents don't make known who God is and what he has done. When they don't instruct their children in the word of God, If we don't instruct our children in God's word, if we don't live it out before them, then they will forget God. And notice here, grandparents, you are enlisted here as well. Yes, you can spoil your grandkids, keep them up late. That's still fine to do. But also make sure that you are instructing them in God's word. You play a part in this as well. Don't neglect to teach them. Look over at Deuteronomy 6.10 where Moses gives another way. I think this verse will be somewhat familiar to some. He says in Deuteronomy 6.10, It shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied in verse 12, look at this. Then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. 
What's God's warning here? What's something that can tempt us to forget him? You see it? Prosperity, right? When things are good. When we have no lack or want. And this is one we especially need to be wary of. We talked about this when we were looking at Amos. That comfort and ease is a danger to forget God. Look at Deuteronomy 8, verse 11. Deuteronomy 8, 11. He says there, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His ordinances and His statutes, which I am commanding you today. Just like in Deuteronomy 4, Moses here warns that as you stray from knowing and following God's instruction, that will lead you to forgetting Him, to neglecting Him, to ignoring Him. Look at verse 12, Moses says, Otherwise... When you've eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Again, that idea of prosperity and blessing will tempt you to forget. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, verse 17, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth. So self-reliance is a great danger to forgetting God. When we have blessing and achievement and success, not only does that distract us from from pursuing the Lord, but also when we start thinking, oh, look at look at how I've really achieved these things and my effort and my ingenuity, my time, my hard work, my resourcefulness. As you begin to give credit to yourself. God moves into the background. And Moses didn't just identify dangers to forgetting God. He also came at it from a positive perspective. Deuteronomy 16, Moses describes the three annual feasts that the people were to celebrate as a memorial to God. Passover, unleavened bread, a feast of booze. These were annual feasts. They were all to gather and celebrate in order to encourage them, to remind them of what God had done for them and what He was continuing to do. And we too have been given a memorial, have we not? Didn't we just celebrate it? You know why He gave it to us? This is like the largest post-it note in history. (laughs) Don't forget what Christ has done. Don't forget. It's a celebration of what Jesus has done for us. And we celebrate it here frequently, at least each month, because it's an important reminder so that we don't forget Him. We actually have other celebrations too. Christmas, uh, uh, Easter, Resurrection Day. They're not commanded. You don't have to celebrate them. But you know it's a great opportunity each year to, to have these things and to celebrate Christ's coming, to celebrate His death and His resurrection. And you know what? Come up with other ways in your family. To celebrate. Reminders that will help you remember what God has done for you. We have a thing we do. We call it Family Day. We do it right after Thanksgiving. And that's a time where we celebrate what God has done in giving us one another as a family. Come up with different ways. Reminders. Memorials, if you will. To remember God's goodness in your life. So that you don't forget God. And I took a look here at Deuteronomy. had us go back to look at Moses' warnings because... We too can be in danger of neglecting God. We too are susceptible to becoming lazy or apathetic at times to God's instruction. We too can be distracted by wealth and prosperity and blessing. We too can tend, if we're not careful, not to instruct our children or our grandchildren about God. Or at times to rely on ourselves for what we have. Or to not celebrate the memorials to the Lord. And so to prevent yourself from doing that, that's why you need consistent, planned times with God. Times in His Word, times of prayer, times of fellowship, consistently with other believers. These are all important so that we can keep our minds set on the things above where Christ is. And going back to Hosea 8, we see a fourth reminder there. If you look at the middle of verse 4, It says there in Hosea, with their silver and their gold, they have made idols for themselves that they might be cut off or that is destroyed. He's rejected your calf, O Samaria, saying, my anger burns against them. How long will they be capable, incapable of innocence? For from Israel is even this, a craftsman made it, so it is not God. 
Surely the calf of Samaria will be broken to pieces. So again here, one more time, Hosea brings up this whole issue of idolatry. He's mentioned it over and over. In fact, that's how the book began, where he called Hosea to marry a harlot. He says, because the people of Israel commit harlotry against me. They have betrayed him. And all through the book, over and over again, he talks about their spiritual harlotry, their idolatry, their unfaithfulness to the Lord. In fact, in Hosea 4.17, he summarizes it when he says, Ephraim is joined, connected to idols. Rather than look to God for help in providing their crops, they look to Baal. Rather than seeking the Lord and trusting in Him, they trusted in other gods. Another one's mentioned here, the calf of Samaria. It's probably the golden calf that uh, Jeroboam I had built when Israel and split from and when Israel and Judah split into two different kingdoms. And that sometimes that. Now, there's a little confusion with that, the golden calf. And you think, well, why would he be so blatant and make this idol for, to, for the people to worship? Actually, he, he made that idol because uh, in ancient Near Eastern thought, uh, animals were often thought to be what the gods would stand on. And so this calf was seen as an object that was a, a, a symbol of strength and fertility, calves or bulls. And so the, he built it as a, as a stand for God to, to, be, to place his foot on. Eventually, though, because it was a physical object, the people did begin to worship these calves. But initially, it wasn't an object of worship, but it showed how polluted the worship of God had become. And now, you know, again, we've looked at idolatry many times as we've gone through Hosea, but we shouldn't dismiss it right away as just some archaic Old Testament notion that we don't need to worry about. Remember how John, the Apostle John, ended his first letter in 1 John 5, 21? He said, little children, keep yourself from idols. Or Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. He's speaking to believers here, New Testament believers. He says, idolatry is a danger even for you. We too can craft an idol in our own hearts. What is it that captures your heart? What is it that gains your allegiance? What is it that you turn to in time of need? What's the first thing that you latch on to for help? What is it ultimately that you do trust in? What is it that you find satisfaction in? Paul brings up one area in Colossians 3, 5 when he says, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Or in Ephesians 5, verse 5, he says that a covetous man is an idolater. You realize what Paul is saying there? You know, coveting is this desire, this demand that I want something God hasn't given me, or I want more of something that God has given me, and going in sinful ways to get it. You know what that is at its heart? It's discontentment. Not being content. Do you realize that is an idol? That's an idol. When we express this, this craving and this passion, that, you know, again, coveting can be for something not just for money. We often think of greed or coveting as, as money or material possessions, and it is that. But we can also covet sex. We can covet uh, possessions. We can covet position. We can covet fame, um, entertainment. Whatever it is, Paul says this discontentment is idolatry. So this craving for more is is the same thing as if you were to build an altar to Baal and put it out on your front lawn and go outside and worship it. Discontentment is an idol. And the answer to any idolatrous desire is to find your contentment where? Brothers and sisters, where? In Christ, right? In Christ. To cultivate your relationship with Him. To sit at His feet. For when our gaze, our focus is directed and fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, we are not distracted to look anywhere else. Right? Mary was so consumed, she forgot all about the, uh, the issues of making a meal and all that. She just wanted to hear from Jesus. But such wasn't the case from, from Israel, for Israel. They had their eyes on everything but God. We see this all throughout Hosea. No faithfulness, no loyalty, no knowledge of God, no love for Him, no relationship with Him. And all the calls to repentance, not only from Hosea, but earlier from Amos 
and other prophets, all those calls to repentance went unheeded. And so, just as we have seen before here in Hosea, how is it that God responds to that? What is it that He declares over and over was going to happen? There'd be consequences for their sin, right? He mentions it numerous times. In fact, in the verses that we read in chapter 8, He says judgment will come upon them like an eagle swooping down. He said in verse 3, the enemy will pursue him. In verse 4, they will be cut off. In verse 5, my anger burns against him. In verse 6, the calf of Samaria will be broken to pieces. And then he summarizes it in verse 7. Not just chapter 8 and the consequences. I think for the whole book, really. He summarizes it, giving them a proverb. Where he says, they have sowed the wind and they what? Reap the whirlwind. Probably heard that phrase even in our culture. It came from Hosea. What he's talking about here is this idea. It gives us our fifth and last reminder, by the way, and that is that you sow what you reap. You sow what you reap. Reap what you sow. (laughs) Sorry, reap what you sow. (laughs) What you sow, you reap. Is that clear? As mud? He says here, you sow the wind and you reap the whirlwind. Wind here in verse 7 is this idea of futile activity. It's something empty, something worthless represents in this context their vain pursuit of idolatry and trusting in something other than God and breaking a covenant. When one sows the seeds of unfaithfulness and rebellion, he's saying here that he will reap the devastating consequences of God's judgment. And here he describes that judgment in verse 7 as a a whirlwind, a a massive storm. It isn't just speaking of some, uh, some strong breeze, but rather a, a destructive and violent storm. And Hosea draws attention and emphasizes the, the impact of this, not only by one uh, make, writing a proverb, he kind of shifts in how he is writing to give them this proverb, but also, too, in the, the words sow and reap sound very similar in the Hebrew. The word sow is Yisra'u, and the word for they reap is Yixoru. So he's drawing attention to the importance of what he has to say here. And then the metaphor of the storm he further carries out when he says that the grain uh, will yield no heads, that is, there will be very little grain, and, and what little there is, they won't be able to make flour from it. And even the little flour that, that might happen to take place or exist, a stranger, a foreigner from outside the land is going to come and swallow it up. An allusion to the coming invasion of Assyria. This proverb in verse 7 is really the response to the people's claim back in verse 2, where they're saying, we know you, God, my God, they even say. But God says, no, you don't. No, you don't. You've been sowing the wind. Now you will reap the whirlwind. That drizzle of rain is going to turn into a Category 5 hurricane. Hosea goes on in chapters 9 and 10 to describe that whirlwind in detail and give many examples of what that was going to look like. In fact, I counted in the next two chapters all the references and phrases to God's judgment, to to His response. There are over 30 of them in the next two chapters alone. And the primary judgment that He declared, that He describes in detail in those next two chapters is exile. They would be taken away in exile from the land. Hosea 9.3, He says, They will not remain in the land, but Ephraim will return to Egypt, and in Assyria they will eat unclean food. Now, that phrase there, return to Egypt, is not saying they're going to go back to Egypt. What it's saying is you're going to go back into captivity like you were in Egypt. He mentions there, it's going to be in Assyria. The Assyrians are going to take you. 9.6, he says, Egypt will gather them up. Memphis will bury them. Again, this is metaphorical. Memphis actually was uh, the capital of Egypt at the time and was was known for being a great burial place. What he's saying is, you know what? You're not going to die in Israel. You're going to die on foreign soil and be buried there. 9.15, God says, I will drive them out of my house. They will be wanderers among the nations. In 10.10, he says, I will chastise them and the peoples will be gathered against them. And then he ends chapter 10 in verse 15 with, at dawn, the king of Israel will be completely cut off. To say it's happening very soon. In fact, it probably happened less than five years after Hosea first spoke these words. The people were reaping what they sowed. They had sought security from the nations around them. And so God says, okay, you will be scattered among those nations. They had polluted the land with their sin and idol worship. And so God says, I will remove you from the land. They had sowed the wind and were now reaping the whirlwind. 
message is clear here. There are consequences for sin. That's the message in chapters 8 to 10. That's the message in the book of Hosea. It's really the message in all of Scripture, isn't it? There are consequences for sin. It happened at the beginning. Very beginning, right? In Genesis 3. And as history has unfolded, that has been the major issue is our sin against God, our sin against one another. And so the Bible aims and points at the solution. The only solution to that sin is whom? It's Jesus. That's the major issue. I was talking to a brother a couple days ago and he was uh, he's been teaching on the various religions in the world. And he says, you know, that is the only issue. That is the main issue. What to do regarding sin? Because everybody knows there's a problem. Everybody knows that you just look at what's going on in this planet. There are issues. And everyone's got an answer on how to resolve those things and deal with them. But there's only one answer that is true and only one answer that, that works, if you will. And that is to be right with God through his son to be forgiven. But here. People of Israel recognized they were reaping what they sowed. They did not repent. They did not turn. Proverbs eleven eighteen says the wicked earn deceptive wages, but he who sows righteousness gets a true reward. Proverbs 22, 8, he who sows iniquity will reap vanity. In fact, the whole book of Proverbs, really, we could call the book on sowing and reaping. He talks there all over the place of of what could happen, the consequences for sin, but also the rewards for righteousness. And Paul showed in Galatians 6, 7, this was not just an Old Testament thing. Remember what he said there? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And this sowing and reaping principle, it's woven into the fabric of God's creation. Right? The universe follows physical principles, right? If you were to climb up on the roof of this building and then walk off, what's going to happen? Ouch, yeah. <laughs> right? There's a principle that God has created called gravity. We cannot violate that principle. You walk off the roof, there's one direction you're heading. And just as God has wired his universe with these physical principles, so too he has wired it with moral principles. And just as certain as stepping off that roof means falling to the ground, so too pursuing a sinful action will bring consequences for that action. But so many people think, you know, they can get away without suffering consequences. God's going to wink the eye at it. He's going to forget about it. Or he doesn't really care. It's not that big a deal. But that's not the case. And the sowing and reaping principle is, as Paul points out, is true for the believer as well as the non-believer in this life anyway. Christians can sin and thus are, con- are subject to the consequences of that sin in this life. So Hosea's words in 10 verse 12 are apt words where he says this. God describes another type of sowing. Sow with a view to righteousness. Reap in accordance with loyal love. Break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord until he comes to rain righteousness on you. Hosea shows us it goes both ways. Sow righteousness, sow godliness, sow holiness. And that sowing will reap a blessing of a right relationship with him. That's the fifth principle. Sowing and reaping. You know, and as I step back and think about that, this last reminder that you will reap what you sow, I, I just have to praise God for the gospel. <laughs> I am so grateful for the gospel. You know, I was the same, exactly the same as these Israelites. Exactly the same. Claiming I knew God, claiming I had a relationship with him, that I was saved. I was the guy in verse two. I know you, God. But I had broken my vows to follow Christ, rebelled against his word, depended on other things for security and happiness. I I worshiped at the feet of the gods of this world. And so I was on the path to destruction. I'd been sowing the empty wind of futility and I was going to reap the whirlwind of hell. But praise God for the gospel. Praise Jesus for the cross. Aren't you grateful there's mercy and forgiveness? If, you know, all of us, we have sown 
sin and iniquity and rebellion. But do you realize that in the cross, the sowing and reaping principle is actually turned on its head? Because I sowed sin. Jesus reaps my punishment. And though Jesus, he sowed righteousness because of the cross, I will reap the reward of heaven. Praise God for the gospel. And if you've been sowing a life of sin, confess that to Christ now. Don't let today pass. Turn from your sin. Trust in Him. Sow repentance and faith and you will reap the rewards of eternal life. Fellowship with a loving God for eternity. Just as Jesus said, whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. Praise God for the gospel. Amen? I'm so grateful for the gospel because in it God not only gives salvation, but He also gives the grace to sow righteousness and gives us the grace to be able to live a life pleasing Him. Praise God for the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that though we have sown iniquity, rebellion, and unfaithfulness, broken promises. Lord, all the things Hosea mentioned, we we are all guilty of them as well. And yet, you've given us your Son so that we might reap the blessings and benefit of His life if we would but turn and believe. And that as your children, we can reap the benefits of His righteousness and live a life that by the power of your Spirit, we can please you and and honor you and, and Lord, be used by you. What an amazing thing. We thank you, Lord, for these reminders from Hosea. Keep reminding us, God. Don't let us forget. We praise you and thank you. Praise you for the gospel. In Jesus' name. Pray. Amen.